In a high-value, developed society such as the UK, every new project, every change to the built environment, creates interfaces with countless existing assets. What is Britain built on? It is built on itself. Most sectors are reliant on infrastructure systems that have lasted for centuries. All are increasingly interconnected and interdependent, a countrywide system of systems. Every action brings the potential for one stakeholder to be in conflict with another. And as the built environment becomes ever more intricate, so the work of engineers becomes ever more complex. Multiple disciplines having to work in unison, each moving towards the same goal and none disrupting another. According to a Cambridge Centre for Smart Infrastructure study from 2017, new assets add less than 0.5% each year to the value of existing infrastructure. The infrastructure industry might well see itself more like the steward of a sustainable system, rather than the builders. That is why nothing tests a mature industry like a megaproject. Megaprojects are multi-billion pound investments that aim to drastically reshape our infrastructure and our built environment. They are society-altering interventions that leverage all the resources of the state to improve the lives of its citizens or to protect the environment. In scope, this is not the careful tinkering that comes to mind when one thinks of stewards, but in delivery, the necessary precision, skill, timing and even accommodation of others is incredible and because of the scale every mega project is unique. The complexity of work is amplified a thousandfold and requires dozens of major companies and thousands of skilled professionals to come together to deliver it to those three famous criteria safely, on time and on budget. Yet for all the dedication and care these are still the most complex projects undertaken by humanity. And time after time, they fall short of these goals. To the point that the measure of a mega project success is how little it misses these targets by. According to a McKinsey study from 2015, large rail projects go over budget by 45% on average. Bridges and tunnels go over by 35% and road projects by 20%. This figure worsens as complexity and size increases, with megaprojects over one billion in value going over budget nine times out of ten. Whether this is down to incorrect forecasting, poor decision-making, political changes, toxic contracting cultures, governance failures or scarce resources, it happens and it is seen as a fact of life for projects on this scale. But does it have to be? Hello and welcome to The Tunnelling Podcast. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. And this month we've partnered with our sister podcast, Engineering Matters, to bring you a three-part special. Engineering Matters is celebrating a special anniversary. It's episode 100. Yep, Engineering Matters has hit its century. And to mark the occasion, we are bringing you a special episode a three-part mini-series in partnership with engineering and management consultancy, Mott MacDonald. In this special, we are looking at some of the most significant engineering works undertaken, transport mega-projects. 
but we will look at them from a specific angle, how they can be delivered better. To do this, we will look at the work needed just to get a project approved, how projects justify their funding, set up a realistic programme, get the engineering right, and finally, navigate political and stakeholder demands to reach royal assent. But what is royal assent? We will learn all about that and also learn about the intense demands on project owners. Why delivery of all the requirements of such a project within the constraints of society is such a difficult task. How asset owners need to identify their strengths and weaknesses so that they can supplement their capabilities where needed and take a leadership role where they excel. And finally, we will look at lessons learned from two of the most iconic projects of our time, the Eastside Access Project in New York and Crossrail in London. In this episode, we will hear from a range of industry experts who make the case that project owners need help to deliver these assets. To do that, they advocate the delivery partner model. But the actual setup is a bit more nuanced than that. But first, we need to go back to the beginning, to a time when a fledgling megaproject is still just the dream of a group of enthusiastic politicians and industry visionaries. The first step is to get that project funded. And to do this, it needs to demonstrate that it is a worthwhile use of taxpayer money. This is usually done with a cost-benefit study. For that, we need someone with experience directing transportation projects. My name is Michael Saville. I'm a director in the transportation unit for Mock MacDonald. My job title is practice leader for tunnelling for UK and Europe. Michael says his responsibility is primarily in keeping his team match fit, making sure it is a team with the capacity and capability to deliver its projects. He explains what the project is like at the earliest stages. The client usually has a concept of how they want to have some transformation, be it a, a transport project or, or services, utility services, for example, delivering water or power into an area. And they'll have an outcome that they would like to see. It's their vision of what they would like to see. And what the engineers are going to have to do is help, help frame that in the practical world of what's doable and what's not. But engineers being engineers, this presents an issue. If you ask an engineer, can they do it? They'll almost always say, yes, they can do it. Given enough time, given enough money, anything is achievable. Humans are amazingly adaptable, as you can see. But the real question that the engineers need to help the client with is, should we do it? And that means taking this balance between the, the value that will come out of doing this transformation versus um, how much will it cost to actually do it. What are the benefits? What's the benefit to cost ratio? The client goals are at, at the first point might be driven by commercial means. They might just be driven by sustainability uh, approach or other social outcomes. So we really have to unpick what is that vision and where is it? What are the drivers for that for that vision? We help them understand that. And then we look around for either precedents or the technology that we know exists that can help achieve that. This work will quickly highlight which items of their project are very expensive, which items are very cheap, 
which are quick, which are risky. And it helps to put a framework around the project that can then be refined and brought to the strategic outline and business case. This work forms a complex specialism populated by transport planners who use guidance from the Department for Transport to quantify all benefits into pounds. Each project has a cost-benefit target, a specific ratio. And some clients are very strict about the boundaries of those benefits and others have a wider view and take a more socially inclusive view for that. So I would always recommend that the wider economic benefits are considered and factored into the benefit of a project. These are what projects call critical success factors, economic and sustainable goals. And in recent years, projects are thinking more broadly about wider benefits and factoring these in. But I think a lot of the clients really genuinely believe as well that the benefits of the projects that they're, they're thinking of do have wider, wider implications and they should be brought in. Uh, and for a, for a nation that needs to address climate change and social inclusion, for example, these are really vital and valid forward thinking concepts that need to be built into projects. Um, and I think as engineers, if we didn't do that robustly, then we would also be failing in some way. This is a realisation that came to Michael while working on the studies for Crossrail 2, a proposed 47-station rail route that will run north-south through London into Hertfordshire in the north and Surrey in the south. He says the project tended to look really strictly at journey time savings and try to justify the project and the business case simply on journey time. And that gave a decent enough answer, a decent enough answer for continued funding and investment and study into what, what, what could be done. Then we realised that really it was, a, it was a project that was going to connect regions of the southeast of England. Generally, Crossrail 2 has been seen as a route to funnel people into the centre of London for work. But the sheer scale that comes with a mega project brought its own benefits. But the vast length of that network meant that people could get on and off where they liked. So it didn't have to be coming into the centre of London. You could get off from the outskirts and, and be getting off to work that, that's in a suburb in itself. Then there was the culture and leisure side of life. Large events were on the increase in London and this connection helps facilitate those, transporting large crowds that otherwise cause gridlock. Then they looked at opening hours, what the incremental benefits of longer operational hours were and when people could travel. However the justification is made when it comes to funding megaprojects, there is an elephant in the room, that of cost overruns. Although each project is massive in scope and utterly unique, never built before and never to be built again, the delivery record remains what it is. Yeah, it's, it's one of the one aspect of these major once-in-a-generation opportunities that then always seems to get the bad press. And it's a combination of, it's not a single thing that people do wrong or, or, or approach from the wrong way. It's a combination that the system of how we assess the likely costs and the risks that go with that need to be communicated and bought into early on. And people lock onto the cost of a project as a number. It very easily sits in our head and is well remembered. 
And that is usually the first number you say that project X is going to cost three billion and expectations get set very early in a project when initial values start getting talked about. And we have to be really careful which numbers are taken and why they're taken. The experience we've had of mega projects that have been constructed over the last couple of decades should give us ample precedent to predict what the future costs will be. And yet experience tells us that we can be uh, 50% out, you know, in a worst case scenario. And this really has to be looked at. And I think it means that clients that are also influenced uh, in some way by political motives at, at times need to be appraised and briefed and guided in what the numbers mean and how sensitive they are. This failure is not a fault of the engineering, and there isn't a single process failure that says we are going to get it wrong by X percent. But it does. it is a real shame that that happens uh, for a number of reasons. The DFT try to build that into their estimates with something called optimism bias, and they'll add uh, a percentage on top of uh, an estimated figure to take account of these unknown things that happen through the life of a project as it evolves. Uh, and it goes some way as an approach, it's a pragmatic approach. And it goes some way to address the fact that projects cost change and risks become more quantifiable. Although the general trend when risks become more quantifiable is perverse, the costs go up. You would like to think that the opposite would happen. And there is a huge amount of research that needs to be done bridging the gap between engineering and transport planning. Two people on Michael's staff have been researching major project funding at University College London. So it is understood as far as it goes. But, you know, the, the influencing that in the reality of a project and getting the right numbers at the right place to the right people does seem quite a challenge. It's genuinely a challenge. And I'd say is one of the things that makes engineering lose credibility. The excitement and, and pride that should come with delivering these major projects can often be dented by a mismatch of, of funding. The funding of a project is a short-term pain for everyone involved and seems like a lot of money to the public. But once the infrastructure is built, it is there, improving people's lives for generations. Headlines totally forgotten. The project client needs to be able to look closely at the cost, programme and scope and really understand what is driving high costs and where the true benefits are coming from. But now we move to the engineering itself. My name is Samir Ali. I'm project director within Mont MacDonald. I'm in the uh, transportation unit. I work on transportation infrastructure projects at the delivery phase, working with uh, construction uh, organisations and working with clients on delivering the project outcomes. Sama has spent some time thinking about what goes into a project. He has broken down what it means to have sound engineering into a number of building blocks. These need to be considered very early in project development or problems can get embedded that will cause major difficulties later on. Are you ready? Go. These are number one, clear vision. So by vision, I mean what the project owner's imagination of the future looks like, how they want that infrastructure to positively impact people. Number two, clear project requirements. 
some by project requirements, effectively design requirements, um, how the project will contribute to economy, looking at skills and employment, uh, the quality management and how the quality will be looked at, logistics and so on and so forth. Number three, operation and maintenance. If you think about the major infrastructure projects, they normally take a decade or sometimes a little bit more uh, from inception to completion. Um, effectively, sometimes they take more than a decade. The technologies that are available at the start of a project are likely to become obsolete by the time we get into putting these projects into use. So thinking ahead and, and considering implementing any future technologies, any future research and so on and so forth is, is quite a, a, an important element to plug into the uh, requirements from the initial phases. Number four, looking at the infrastructure holistically. Effectively, every infrastructure project is a uh, composition of complex systems or subsystems and components. And um, it's, it's actually important to look at those components and how they work together. Because if you make a change to one of the components, you could potentially have a, an impact on the performance of the overall system. So looking at the railway project, components could be something like the uh, the civils, the bridges, the earthworks, the tunnels which carry the trains, um, the, the tracks, that's another component, communication systems, the signalling, the power, the rolling stock and so on and so forth. Number five, the interdependencies between those systems. This interdependency creates interfaces. And what that and understanding that interdependency helps the client uh, or, or the infrastructure owner to uh, define the procurement, how they want to bring in the, the different components, how they want to procure the different components, whether they're going to package them together or have them in separate packages. And it also helps in defining an efficient approach to delivering the infrastructure. Number six engaging with stakeholders. To help understand the needs of those uh, stakeholders and the needs of the communities, help understand if there are impacts, how those impacts can be resolved and, 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 and reduced during the development of, of an infrastructure project, and also identify opportunities. Number seven, understanding the information you have and the information you need. The infrastructure project concepts, starting from blank a piece of paper, effectively the information is quite scarce. So the more information we have, the greater the certainty will be. But obviously there's always a sweet spot at the start. You can't have everything, but we've got to define the correct level of information that will help bring about that certainty. And examples of this sort of set of information, if you're looking at a, a highway project, be the topography, where the highway is going to be built, uh, understanding the constraints, if there are ancient trees or ancient woodlands that cannot be moved. Number eight, risk and opportunity. So we talked about information earlier. And in the instance of not having enough information to progress the development of infrastructure projects uh, at the early, uh, early stages, assumptions would be made. But what assumptions normally come up we come together with is they come together with risks and they also come together with opportunities in some instances. So if we make assumptions which end up being favorable, more favorable than reality, uh, that could have an impact on 
cost and could have an impact on program. But the reverse could also happen if our assumptions were more conservative, then later down the line, as they're verified, we could have advantageous uh, impact on cost and, 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 and opportunity in terms of time and, and completing the works earlier. And then it also links to uh, the risk allocation, who is best placed to uh, manage that risk. Number nine, the development phase. We then uh, go through the development phase of this engineering principles or, or of those engineering concepts. Starts with uh, option assessment and option selection, developing those options into more concrete solutions and then taking those solutions into the production design and then into construction. And number 10, which Sama says is an underlying block for him, progressive assurance. Which is uh, uh, effectively uh, uh, an approach to validate and, 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 and to verify that the developed systems and the developed components do meet the requirements which were set at the start. So we set the requirements, we go through the development, but then throughout and or progressively throughout the development, we've got to look and see whether what we've developed is actually uh, in line with the requirements which were set. So those building blocks, when they come together, they effectively set a map that helps in developing sound engineering concepts from the early stage of, of, of developing infrastructure projects. With the funding justified and the engineering under control, the complexity of these projects means that robust program management gives you the best chance for delivery. For that, we need to speak with David Donald. David manages the Bridges team inside the Mott MacDonald Transportation Department, although his background was in major ports and harbour schemes. So you, you have got a normal chronology of events of, of how a project will develop. And the reality is that because it is that, that sort of linear development, Anything which goes and impacts at any point in time will push out the end date. David says that the idea your end date can be fixed before you have greater certainty about your project scope and contract packages is nice to have, but unlikely. Contract package sizing depends on a lot of factors, whether you're looking at a civils package or a systems package. I think one of the, the, the things which we've been seeing is that, uh, that it's important to go and to go and come up with a, a with a, a contract strategy which actually goes and considers the end in sight. So from that viewpoint that we all know that we've got a, a lot of projects which end up that it's it's during the uh, the integration and systems and commissioning stage where the issues are and it, it's really taking that that step back of understanding what are you actually trying to achieve from from a, an operations viewpoint trying to go and look at it's uh, taking a step back and then considering the main constraints on the work to determine how to actually divide it up. After this, David says it is important to incentivize, to encourage project thinking and collaboration. And for me, the, the understanding with this is there's a bit of a symbiotic relationship that you can't have the client dictating something which the market won't want or won't deliver because they just won't go and get the interest in the market. Or the other way around, that uh, what the contractors want if it doesn't actually manage the client's risk then it's going to go and make it a, a little bit more uh, more challenging. We are very familiar in the UK with the threat to programme posed by systems and fit-out work. 
which always seems to take longer than originally thought. And it may be that construction has a bias and focuses too much on the capital delivery side of projects and not the entire system. But another threat to program is long lead items. These are bits of equipment or other services that take a long time to deliver. These need to be identified and procured early so they do not impact the critical path. Then there are critical and scarce resources. Some of these things are actually outside the, the procurement process, but we need to go and manage. David recalls one project during his days working in the ports sector, and he had to look at overall power supply for the port and the rail facilities. And because it was such an in increase in, in demand, it was then speaking with the, with the, the power suppliers, the utility companies, in order to make sure that there was suitable supply. And the most scarce resource is sometimes a niche skill set. We were switching over from an old uh, rail operating system, control system, into a new system. And there was only two or three people who were, were around who were, actually understood the old system. And the critical element was that switchover from the old to the new and making sure we had that resource who understood the, the old system. And as I say, there was only a couple of people around who could do that. So they were, we had someone as a backup and it was sort of making, putting someone in a hotel, making sure that during that operation that they were available and on hand to, uh, uh, to do it. The power to approve or kill a project ultimately lies with very few people. Parliamentarians overcoming political hurdles, keeping on the right side of public opinion and keeping every potential stakeholder happy. It's an arcane side of infrastructure for most of us. But here is Mark Leggett, who manages all of Mott McDonald's High Speed 2 projects. He's a technical advisor for Northern Powerhouse Rail and a former chair of the British Tunnelling Society. So, what are some of the political hurdles a project has to overcome? Mark looks thoughtful for a moment, then grins. It, it, that's a really simple question and a hugely complex answer because it, it's fascinating with projects. You know, projects start because of, uh, they either start because of a need and uh, or there's political will or there's a political, you know, if you look at what's happening today, union connectivity, and it's talking about that as a, as a sort of a real political drive there because of Brexit. So how do we join up the UK? They always get to the political arena based on need. That's the start. But it's hugely fascinating as to why and how projects do progress. A great example for me is Chelsea Hackney Line, one of my first jobs when I joined Mott McDonald 30 years ago, which is now Crossrail 2 and is now back on the shelf. And really, that should have been pushed forward before Jubilee Line. But Jubilee Line went first. Why? Political will. The politics of the day dictated it shall be thus, and so it was. So as an engineer, when we're sort of doing these jobs, I think we have to understand it's not always about the engineering. And I think that's, that's quite difficult for engineers. It suits me because I'm, I like the sort of fuzziness of the projects at that stage. Yeah, so you have your need, you've got your political will, you've done your route development, probably done a high-level environmental appraisal, which they did on high-speed high two, and so you have a, and you've done rounds of consultation. Which Mark says we do not do enough of. 
but more of that will come in part three of this mini-series. And then you hone in, and often it's the Secretary of State will make a decision on, say, a route or the, the motor of the project, like on Crossrail. Projects like Crossrail are a bit easier because, you know, we, I remember the early days we had a station at Whitechapel, a station at Isle of Dogs, and because of the constraints and the buildings in the way and everything, it, it, there aren't that many routes, you know. A project like High Speed 2 is much more complex due to the options available. And the route selection becomes something that needs to be done with very good evidence. You will always have some unhappy stakeholders and you need to ensure that your selected option is the best of all possible worlds. Then back in Parliament, a bill of some variety is put forward. This could be a private member's bill, a government bill, a Transport and Work Act order or a hybrid bill. The hybrid bill has been a popular option for complex projects because once it's had its second reading, it is difficult to stop the project. It also does not constrain the permitted works overly at this early stage. And with a hugely complex scheme like a mega project, this is an advantage. So Transport Works Act order is similar to a bill, but it's much more constrained. London Underground often use it for smaller projects. But it can get hugely complex for larger projects. Mark cites Heathrow's Terminal 5 project. Terminal 5 was a classic example where they, they actually did a, a planning application, but they had a public inquiry, and that can lengthen the time you need to take powers, whereas with a bill, you have petitioners, and it's, it's heard by a select committee in Parliament. And then there's the Development Consent Order, which is for nationally significant infrastructure projects. Which is being used for things like Lower Thames Crossing, the Stonehenge Tunnel, and a lot of highway schemes. And that is similar to a bill, but it's, um, the timescales are different. It requires much more consultation up front, much more work up front, and it has very defined timescales afterwards. Whereas a hybrid bill, because it goes into select committee, is pretty ill-defined on how long it takes once you've deposited it. Which is the kind of flexibility that is appealing to a complex transportation project. All these vehicles lead you to an order of some kind which allows you to compulsory purchase land, which is what you need to do if you're going to build some of these projects, and to, to build and operate it. So that's what you need, you need powers to do that. Everything in Parliament leads up to royal assent, which is the moment our project is signed into law by the Queen. Mark summarises the journey of the hybrid bill to that point. So what happens is with a, with a hybrid bill, you have, it's, it's read, read in Parliament, so you get the second reading. Then it goes into select committee in the House of Commons, and it is uh, so a, 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 a select a committee of MPs hear evidence from the promoter. That's our project client. And they hear petitions from people who want to petition against it, for it, they want to make changes. And at the end, and then it goes into the House of Lords, and there's a select committee of the House of Lords. And at the end of that process, once all every all the petitions have been heard, the promoters made any adjustments he needs to make, the select committee have made their reports, suggesting either imposing adjustments or uh, putting things in as undertakings and assurances. So there's things that permit the promoter to to certain things after project. At that point, the bill, the Act, is then approved by Parliament. At that point, it can be signed off by the Queen and made law. And it is a law, it's an Act. It's an Act of Parliament. 
This journey is perhaps more treacherous than it has ever been. Although we seem to be in an era where the value of infrastructure is appreciated, there is something else with which we now have to contend. This, I think, is the dilemma for projects. Um, we live in a different age. You know, when I did Crossrail, which isn't that long ago, well, it's 20 years, that's a long time. Um, you know, when I did Crossrail, the, it was, we didn't have social media, we didn't have Twitter. Now the world is different. What you say and what you present can be transmitted and communicated so quickly you've got to be really careful what you're saying and I think we need to win the arguments for projects like Northern Pass Rail around reliability of service, frequency of service it, rather than yeah you can get from you know Liverpool to Leeds faster. I mean it's if you've travelled on trains in the north you want to know the train there's going to be a train right? It is an argument that's persuasive and an argument that's often accepted. In a world where projects dance on the knife edge of public opinion, the communication has to be as precise and well thought out as the engineering. And if a project is explained incorrectly to the public, its ultimate stakeholder, it may fall off that knife edge. We need to learn the lessons from the past. We need to engage better with stakeholders. We need to find a way to engage with the public and walk in the shoes of the customer. And not just the customer who's going to use our asset, like our railway, but there are other people that are customers, people that it goes past, people that it that they live next to the station. And I, I quite like, I just read this thing, we need to think much more about integrated transport. It's this first mile, last mile thing, which I've only just really got to grips with. It's this sort of, unless you're within easy reach for a piece of transport, you're not going to use it. So the first mile is the first mile of your journey from your house. The last mile is the mile at the end. If you haven't, if we haven't got that cracked, then you just build something to nowhere. In this first part of our three-part exploration of what it means to deliver a mega project, we looked at the setup of a project and some of the challenges it needs to overcome before the first shovel breaks the ground. In the next episode, we will learn more about the delivery itself and what a project client can do to manage the mass of responsibilities it faces once the real work begins. We will be joined once again by Samar and Michael to break down the role of the delivery partner, while Mark will be back again in episode three with his reflections and lessons learned from the Crossrail project. The Tunnelling Podcast is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, John Young, Velo Mitrovich and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Script editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And our own unique societal intervention is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode and miniseries partner, Mott McDonald. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, tunneling.reby.media, and on LinkedIn.